Philippians chapter 4, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through verse 3. Philippians 4, beginning at verse 1, listen now to, again, to the reading of God's holy word. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for Again, for this opportunity to come before you to consider the truth of your word, we thank you that your word is our only infallible rule for faith and life to lead us and guide us and direct us. And we pray that as we come to this passage that you would, by the power of your spirit, give us understanding and insight that truly your word would be a fruitful plant that would grow within us, that would nourish our souls and that would help us to be our fruit for your glory. And so we just pray for your blessing now upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, maintaining any kind of peace and unity in any, any relationship or organization is certainly uh, important. And whether that's a, a marriage or a family or maybe a, a business partnership or if you're on a team... Striving for continued unity will greatly solidify the relationship and, of course, keep it focused on accomplishing the the stated goals and purposes. Well, this, of course, is even true in the local church. Here we are. We gather together each Lord's Day. We profess the common faith in Christ. And we look to, we unite together as the body of Christ in this place, to worship our great God and our Savior. And truly, I'm thankful that we can do so in a, in a true spirit of love and unity. Friends, we have to be careful not to take this unity for granted. Indeed, we ought to be vigilant to preserve the unity and the fellowship that we enjoy with Christ and with one another. As Jesus warns in uh, the Gospels, he says that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And certainly a church or a congregation divided against itself cannot stand. And so if we would continue to stand as a beacon of light and hope in this community, then we must vigorously contend for unity in our midst. And this has, of course, been one of the prominent themes in this letter to the Philippians. In the theme verse of the letter, back in uh, chapter 1, verse 27, the Apostle says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Well, here, as Paul now is bringing his letter to a close, 
He's again reminding the Philippians of this challenge to live their lives as citizens of the gospel and as they remain steadfast in the truth and as they strive for unity and the progress of the gospel. But in our passage this morning, he shows that this isn't just some lofty platitude, but it has some practical implications for our day-to-day lives in the body of Christ. In these verses, Paul seeks to challenge and encourage the Philippians, and ultimately us, to be strengthened against any challenge to the unity of the body when it comes. And it will come. There will be challenging times that will come that will uh, challenge the fellowship and the unity and the love that we have for one another. But that we should be strengthened about this and against this, so that we would continue to press on in the ministry that we have been called to do, and that Christ has called us, uh, called us to do. Well, first, as we begin here, Paul uh, seeks to encourage uh, the Philippians by, again, making it very clear uh, to them of his great love and affection for them. Indeed, as you read through the book of Philippians, you, you get the unmistakable idea that Paul really, really cares for these people. Back in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, he said, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul freely expresses his affection, and in doing so, he gives an example not only as to the the love and the affection that a pastor should have toward a congregation of God's people, for certainly to be a faithful under-shepherd and to be a faithful elder and and deacon, one should uh, truly have a sincere love for the people of God that have been entrusted to their care. And this love and affection uh, should be clearly evident, as I hope it truly is uh, to each of you. But this is also here an important example of the love and affection that you should have for one another. Loving one another in all sincerity and truth is certainly one way that we can contend for unity in our midst. And we know that a congregation of God's people that exemplifies a love for one another truly is a witness to the community and to the world around us that we truly are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, they will know you by your love for one another. And so Paul has expressed this affection before. And now he does so again in in chapter 4 verse 1 in this one verse. Two times, he refers to them as his beloved. And again, he's reminding them how he longs to see them. And Paul isn't just buttering them up with with these empty compliments. No, he's sincerely pouring out his heart's desire so that they might know that when he does bring challenging words, and he will bring challenging words, that it's because of his great love for them And for his desire to see them become more like Christ. But first they need to be reassured that he truly cares for them. 
And Paul further expresses his affection by saying that these Philippian believers are his joy and crown. That is, as he's uh, heard of their progress in the faith, and this, even in the midst of, of opposition and persecution, they're clearly bearing this kind of spiritual fruit in their lives. Which, of course, then reveals that Paul's ministry among them wasn't in vain, but is now actually bearing great and abundant fruit for the glory of God. And so this brings Paul great joy, even now, especially while he is in chains in Rome far away. And his own situation is miserable. He's filled with great joy because of what he hears about what's going on in the lives of those to whom he has ministered. And so they're, in a sense, a crown of achievement, but again, all to the glory and praise of God. And so Paul reminds them of this great love, of this great love and affection to encourage them. But he also here, in this verse, encourages them by charging them to stand fast in the Lord. And again, this idea of standing fast or, or firm is also one which Paul has uh, addressed in his letter earlier. And it has that connotation of, of holding the line in the midst of battle. right? To, to stand firm, that you're going to hold the line in battle. He told, charged them to hold fast, to, to stay rooted, to not compromise. To hold that battle line, not to budge, not to be moved. As you seek to live for Christ and the gospel, and as you contend for unity among the brethren. And so he, again, he's reminding them uh, of this, to, to hold the line. And then the therefore, which begins this verse, points back to what they stand fast in. And why they must persevere and remain standing firm. A foundation has been laid down for them. A sure and certain foundation upon which their faith and their lives were to be built. This foundation has to do with the facts of the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ. That He was the only begotten Son of God. And that He came to save His people from their sins. And that He accomplished this salvation by giving Himself as the once for all perfect sacrifice. When He died on the cross. And then He secured this victory for them when He rose again from the dead on the third day. So that forgiveness might be granted to sinners. And that peace and reconciliation between God and man might be secured. So believing in these gospel truths is the foundation of faith. And He's telling them to, to not move from it. To not budge. To not give way to the enemy. On these things. Earlier in, in chapter 3, uh, Paul has shown that they're, that they're engaged in a spiritual battle. When it's a, a daily struggle and striving against the plots and the, the temptations of the evil one, this evil one who would just love to break through their front lines and who would love to, to gain a foothold in their midst to bring about division and strife within the congregation. They're also engaged in a battle against the subtle influence of false doctrine that creeps in and moves people away from this very foundation of the gospel that was first delivered to them. And so against this, they must stand firm. They must resist the temptations to become legalistic, rooting their salvation in their own works, especially by keeping the Old Testament ceremonial laws. And Paul, again, has, has warned them about this. 
But they must also resist the other extreme of all-out lawlessness and a rejection of God's moral law and, and the pursuit of holiness. Now, Indeed, as we look around the evangelical church today, we see evidence of both of these influences. On the one hand, you have legalists and those who, uh, who seek to um, trust in their own uh, faithfulness and their own obedience, their law-keeping, or in their various religious rituals. They trust in that for their salvation. right? They're the legalists. But then, on the other hand, you have the antinomians, that is, those who reject the moral law of God as being binding on the church today, and so they, they live in any way that they want to live, all while still claiming the name of Christ. They keep the door to sin open in their lives. And they don't put that sin to death. And so truly, against these, we too need to stand fast. So we don't succumb to either of these errors. We don't want to be legalists. We don't want to be antinomian. We want to have a right understanding of the law of God and its role in our lives, and how we are to serve and, and love our Lord and our Savior. But Paul also wants these Philippians to stand fast in the faith in the midst of intense suffering and persecution that is brought by those outside of the church, whether from, from the Jews or from the Romans and, and pagan idolaters. And Christians suffer persecution because of their faith in Christ, there are those times when they become the most vulnerable to crushing under the pressure. With all their possessions and all their relationships and even their own lives at stake, some have recanted of their faith in Christ. And they've turned away from the faith that was once professed. And of course we remember that Jesus warned in the parable of the sower that there would be those like these in the church. There would be those seeds sown among the rocks that spring up quickly and they look healthy and vibrant, but they have no root. And so when the heat of the sun comes pouring down and the heat of persecution shines upon them, they, they wither away because they were not standing firm and firmly rooted in the truth of the gospel. Well, Paul doesn't want this for the Philippians. He wants them to stand fast in the faith and cling to the truth of the gospel, even in the midst of this persecution. What a great encouragement for us. Now, persecution is not something that we are overt familiar, uh, familiar with. Familiar with. But it's never too far away. And perhaps we've experienced it, or you've experienced it in different times, in different ways, uh, from family members or from uh, co-workers. But when we think about all-out persecution, like what's happening in, in China, some of the countries in the Middle East, or in North Korea, that's all kind of foreign to us. But it could certainly happen here. And we're never too far from that. And we ought to be mindful of that. Which is all the more reason why we need to stand firm and stand fast in the gospel. To stand on the foundation that was once delivered. That we would not be moved from it. 
And so may this be an encouragement to us. As this encouragement that Paul is giving to the Philippians, may it be our encouragement as well. And of course, the Philippian believers, they've actually been, been doing this, which of course adds to Paul's joy and, and the crown of glory that he's spoken about. But even with how well they're doing, they're truly far from a perfect church. Now certainly in a gathering of sinners, even those sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's bound to be issues and problems that bubble up to the surface. Certainly we, as a congregation of God's people, are not immune to such things. And so this is all the more reason why Paul encourages them by reminding them of his affection for them and charging them to stand fast. Because now he turns to address a particular challenge to the peace and unity of the congregation in verse 2. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. The two women who were members of the Philippian church were in apparent conflict with one another. And Paul urges them to come together and to reconcile. Now, we don't know much about who they were other than what's written here in verses 2 and 3. And we know even less about the nature of their disagreement. Although I will say this, since Paul makes no judgment one way or the other, the issue wasn't likely to be doctrinal or something that was egregiously immoral. Based on what Paul says here about them not living in harmony or with one mind and spirit, it seems likely that the issue was something of, my, of a minor, it's a disagreement over preferences or opinions. And yet it had grown into a great conflict in the church and was threatening the unity of the congregation as well as its witness in the community. Now certainly there is significant issues which can divide a church. Right? Especially at the top would be doctrinal error. Right? Straying away from the truth. And we see that and the effects of that uh, in many churches which once were called a solid faithful churches but have succumbed to doctrinal error and have usurped the, uh, uh, turned away from the authority of God's word. Which has opened the door now to all kinds of gross immorality and, and digressions from the truth of God. There's also flagrant immorality in a church that could bring about division and strife. And we see this again in, in some congregations where there's, there's a great immoral scandal and the church ends up being divided. Some still uh, looking to the leaders who have uh, fallen into these sins as their leaders and others who are just done with them. And of course, there's other deliberate sins that may divide the church. And they can even destroy the church. But so too can much smaller conflicts that if let go long enough and are unresolved can become greater issues. A difference of opinion about minor points of doctrine on or how a particular ministry is run in the church. Maybe it's uh, starting a building projects. I've often heard that, uh, you know, if you want to get rid of the pastor, start a building project. It's a great way to drive the pastor out because of all the stress and trying to deal with all the preferences and opinions people have about doing a building project. 
They can be things like the color of the carpet, right? Petty little things. What's the color of the carpet going to be? Well, people have different opinions about it. They have different ideas. And everybody wants their, their opinions and their ideas heard. And so even these kinds of small conflicts can divide the church. And of course, and, uh, and sadly in our times, in recent years, the issue has been masks or no masks. Or other COVID-related controversies that have uh, wrecked havoc on congregations, even in our own presbytery. Stirred up a lot of division and strife. Now certainly in in many of these uh, places, these kinds of disagreements, they, they may seem petty and they truly are petty. But see, oftentimes they're they're often the last straw that really reveal a long history of disagreements that have uh, simply just uh, been covered over and have, have festered under the radar for quite some time. And now here's the trigger point and suddenly the whole thing explodes and the church divides. Long-standing grudges and personal vendettas between believers, whether currently or even way in the past. Right? 75 years ago, you know, Deacon Ralph wanted the Sunday school rooms painted blue, but, but you know, Miss Gertie, one of the Sunday school teachers, wanted it green. And, and ever since then, those two families have been at odds with one another. It seems silly. But it happens. Such minor little issues become huge points of dissension, disrupting the unity of the church. It's petty. And it not only disrupts the unity of the church, but it also dishonors the public witness to the gospel. Oh, that church is always fighting amongst one another. Now, perhaps the disagreement between Yodia and Syntyche wasn't quite that petty. Or maybe it hadn't gotten to the point of a long-standing grudge. But whatever it was... It was disrupting the unity of the church. And this made Paul very concerned. Concerned enough and that he had even heard about it. Right? He heard about while he's, he's far away sitting in a Roman prison. And it's concerning to him. And so now he's writing in this letter and speaks directly to these two women. And tells them to reconcile. Now it may seem shocking to us that Paul would air the problem between these two women in this letter that he knew was going to be read publicly in front of the whole congregation. And imagine how shocked and horrified Iodia and Syntyche would have been when they heard this uh, exhortation from the apostle. Right? He's talking in the letter about you know, love and joy and, and all this encouragement, and then suddenly, Iodia and Syntyche, you, you ladies need to get your act together. You're disrupting the whole church. Right, imagine if we, you know, I, I pointed people out. Look, you need to get together. You're causing problems for the whole church. Now, certainly this was likely embarrassing for them. But we have to remember, Paul didn't write their names in this letter. A letter that here we are still reading 2,000 years later. This is our memory of Yodia and Syntyche, is that they had this disagreement with one another and it was disrupting the church. But Paul didn't do it to humiliate them. No, he mentions them by name because of his great love and affection for the church 
and for both of these women. And certainly it's a great reminder to us as well that he mentions specifically their names because it shows us that these were real people. Right? It's not just, hey, there's a problem in your midst, kind of take care of it. No, here are the people. Here are the names on the, the membership list. They're the ones that are having this problem and it needs to be dealt with. These are real people with real problems reminding us that we're real people with real problems and sometimes we disagree. But we need to deal with it. And so that's why Paul is, is writing this. Again, it's clear that this was certainly no private quarrel, but was a very public disagreement, and again, likely affecting the, the overall effectiveness of the congregation's witness to those outside the church. Meaning that this conflict was bringing reproach on the name of Christ. And Paul was zealous that the Lord would be glorified and not scorned. Secondly, Paul makes very clear in verse 3 that both of these women are valuable assets to the ministry of the church. And he cares for both of them deeply, holding them in high regard. See, when he was, was in their midst, these two women, among others, shared in the struggle for the cause of the gospel. That is, they were right there with Paul on the front lines, engaging in the spiritual battle so that the church in Philippi could be established. I remember way back when, that when Paul first went to Philippi, Remember, there wasn't a synagogue in town. He went out to the river to meet where uh, these women had gathered together for prayer. And they were the first ones that Paul had shared the gospel with. And it's possible that these two women were among that number. And so they had an important role and a purpose in the life and the ministry of this church. And they were right there with with Paul, two faithful Christian women who've worked together with him and with one another. And yet now they're contending and they're struggling against one another. And Paul wants them to reconcile because he loves them both dearly. And he further demonstrates this love by wisely not taking any sides in whatever the issue may be. Now note how he carefully words his charge, I implore Iodia, and I implore Syntyche. He repeats the verb, as well as their names. That both receive the same exhortation. Both are being equally treated by the apostle. Both are being acknowledged and recognized. He's not saying who's at fault. Both are charged to put aside their differences and strive to live in harmony. Well, this then leads to another reason that he specifically mentions their names, and that's because he wants them to understand that they both have a responsibility to work out their issues in order to preserve the unity of the body. And again, there's no specific problem mentioned, but from Paul's charge, to be of the same mind in the Lord, it was obvious that they weren't of one mind. Now this phrase, be of the same mind, is, is one of Paul's favorite words. And it's one that he's already used several times in this letter, uh, most notably several times in uh, chapter 2, uh, verses 2 through 5, where he says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. 
Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Be of one mind. It essentially means to to live in harmony with one another, to be united together in purpose, to be on the same page with one another. But these women weren't doing this. They didn't have the same mind. They weren't intent on one purpose. And they didn't have in themselves the attitude and the mind which was also in Christ Jesus. By clinging to their differences, they became absorbed in pride and selfishness. Living for themselves rather than living for Christ and unity together. It's likely that their pride was keeping them from reconciling. And they, they, the longer they refused to come together, the more intense the disagreement became. And of course, the more intense it became, the more damaging to the unity of the church. And what Paul is calling for them to do here is simply to submit to one another for the sake of unity. To consider the needs and the interests of the others before themselves. Put aside their differences And let love, grace, and mercy, the very same love, grace, and mercy which they've experienced from and in Christ, they need to let that love, grace, and mercy cover a multitude of sins so that they can be reconciled to one another. Now, this is a hard thing to do. Especially when everyone has their own opinion. And 40 people can have 40 different ideas about what to do and how to do it. This is why we must contend and struggle to preserve unity. Because all it takes is two people with different opinions and both of them refusing to budge. But this isn't the mind of Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, set aside His glory. He set aside His royal position on the heavenly throne and humbled Himself by becoming flesh. Why? So that He might come and serve us. Those who were sinners in rebellion against Him. And this, of course, He did perfectly, even enduring the humiliating and painful death on the cross for our sins. This is what Christ did for us. His mind and purpose was to serve others. And this is what we're to do as well. But we should note, Living in harmony and having the same mind and united in one purpose doesn't mean that we have to lose our individuality. Nor does it mean that we give up on having opinions or preferences. But what it does mean is that we strive and contend with ourselves so that our individuality, our our opinions, our preferences don't get in the way of the unity of the body of Christ and the overall ministry of the church. Right? We have to monitor ourselves so that it doesn't so that our opinions and preferences don't disrupt that unity. And it's this ministry to which Paul now turns his attention. Yodia and Syntyche have a responsibility to work out their differences and come together in peace and harmony. But as is often the case, people who disagree need help. 
And Paul realizes this, and so he enlists someone in the congregation to assist these women and carry out the ministry of reconciliation. He says in verse 3, I urge you also, true companion, help these women. So Paul, having spoken directly to Yodia and Syntyche, he now speaks directly to someone else. But here's the problem. We don't know who. Or at least, maybe we do, but... We don't know for sure. Many commentators believe when Paul says here, true companion or yoke fellow, that this is actually to be taken as a proper name. That he's actually speaking to a particular individual. Now, it could be, there could be other people. Maybe, uh, maybe it's Epaphroditus. But Epaphroditus is, is the one that's, or no, uh, who's taking the letter? Timothy. Epaphroditus has come. Timothy is, is going. Uh, maybe it's Timothy that he's talking to. Some uh, have even, I think it was Matthew Henry even asserted that it was Paul was talking about his wife. Um, maybe he's gotten married since. We don't know. But if it's a proper name, and it's, this is again, it's a possibility. According to the Greek, the name of that person would be something like Syzygus. Kind of a great name. Want to name your kid something? Syzygus. Paul would essentially be saying, Syzygus, be true to your name and act like a yoke fellow to help these two women reconcile. Now, yoke was the harness that, that placed, uh, placed on two animals to ensure that they, they moved at the same speed and in the same direction, which is exactly what Paul is wanting these women to do. Right? Get together, move together, the same pace in the same direction. And whether it's Syzygus or someone else, Paul wants this individual to help these women get there. And the word for help is literally uh, to seize or grasp. And Paul wants this person to take these two feuding women by the hand and sit them down and help them work out their differences. Whether this person is a pastor or an elder or we don't know. But it's likely Paul specifically enlists his help because he's demonstrated this gift to be able to help in this ministry of reconciliation. Now, such a ministry is essential in the church. To truly contend for unity in the body, there must be a willingness to help those in need within the congregation, especially when two members are unable to reconcile. The ministry of reconciliation is essential to the body of Christ because it was the ministry of Jesus Christ Himself. Christ was our mediator who ministered reconciliation between us and God, the Father. And He did this at the cost of His own life, so that we who were in rebellion against God, that we might be now reconciled to Him. And so carrying out this ministry of reconciliation is actually putting the gospel into practice. The desire and openness to this ministry of reconciliation, even in our own midst will greatly strengthen our unity in Christ. But there's another ministry that's mentioned here, and it's the broader ministry of striving and contending for the cause of the gospel. In verse 3, Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Again, Paul's love and affection for the, for the Philippians, and even these two women is evident. He wants them to reconcile 
so that once again they can carry on the ministry of contending for the gospel and seeing the kingdom of God expand throughout their own community and even to the ends of the earth. Petty differences, preferences, and opinions can too easily sidetrack a congregation of God's people from doing the greater work of the gospel ministry ministry that we've been called to do. Paul notes that in the past these women were right there with him. Right, They're struggling against the opposition together. They were teammates with him and with one another in seeking to accomplish this one and the same goal. Clement was also there, a fellow worker, and there were many others that Paul doesn't mention by name. They were all fellow workers who were contending for the gospel. Now, being a fellow worker doesn't mean that they were all necessarily doing the same thing. But each one equipped with and using their own gifts worked together and contributed toward that common goal, which in this case, of course, was the spread of the gospel in their community and standing uh, together, supporting one another in the midst of, of various assaults and attacks by the enemy. Friends, this is the ministry of the body of Christ. Everyone united together, worshiping as one body, and working to be a faithful witness, bringing glory to Christ in all that you do. This is your example. Each and every one of you has a gift, has a role, has a function, a contribution to make in contending for the gospel in our community as part of this congregation and working for the peace and unity within the congregation. Now some may wonder, well, how come I don't get any recognition for what I do? Or or they think that their contribution maybe isn't as important as, as someone else's. And others may even complain That, well, so-and-so isn't doing their fair share and I'm doing all this over here. And there may be differences of opinion about how to do things. There may be opposing preferences. But these things ought not to distract you from your chief goal and purpose. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever through the ministry of the gospel. Both within the congregation and also outside its walls. And if it's, if it's recognition that concerns you or a lack thereof, well, Paul reminds us of an important truth here. Even as he reminds those who might be tempted to take offense, say, hey, you know, Paul, as they're reading this letter, you know, Paul didn't mention my name. You know, he Clement, he mentions him. He even mentions these, these arguing women, but what about me? Well, to those must remember that those who may be forgotten by man are not forgotten by God. Because all those, all those who hope and trust is in Christ Jesus alone for salvation and who by His grace strive vigorously for the cause of the gospel and who contend for the unity of the body of Christ, who remain steadfast in faith despite the assaults and the attacks of the evil one, all these All these faithful ones have their names written in the book of life. The book of life is God's heavenly registry of all those who are truly His through Jesus Christ. They may not have their name in this letter to the Philippians, but their name is in the book of life. Our names are certainly not here, but truly may our names be written in the book of life whose pages never fade away. 
Truly, there's no greater privilege or recognition that we could have than to have our names written in this glorious book that remains forever and ever and ever. Beloved of God, contending for the peace and unity in the church, it isn't easy. In fact, it's impossible unless the grace of God is working in us so that the peace and unity can be maintained. But the challenge set before you this morning is that as you rely on God's all-sufficient grace, hold the line. We're engaged in battle. Hold the line and stand fast. And contend with every fiber of your being to preserve the unity of this body. Because you're going to need one another. In the day of great distress, in the day of great persecution, we're going to need one another. And so we need to stand fast and not budge. But hold the line together, preserving that unity, so that we may truly be one in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that we might be a true beacon of light and hope and a witness to the world around us, to our community. That they will see that we truly are disciples of the Lord Jesus because we have love for one another that's clearly evident that pours out from, the, from, out, from out these walls. They see it in our lives and how we treat one another. Hold the line. Contend for that unity. And do it so that ultimately, God alone might be glorified in us and through us. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God in heaven, we do praise you and thank you for the truth of your word and the challenge that you give to us to, to preserve the unity that you have established in our midst. You have brought us together. You have brought us together first by reconciling us to yourself and to the Heavenly Father because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. That we have forgiveness, that we have peace and reconciliation so that we can be reconciled to God. But now we are united together with all those who have that common faith in Christ. It's a bond that cannot and is not easily broken. And there are many assaults from the outside. And we need to stand fast in the gospel. And in that foundation which has been set. Never giving in to, to error, not to the legalist, not to the antinomian. But standing firm. But we also need to be mindful that sometimes those disruptions come from within. And our own preferences and opinions get in the way. And bring about disruption and conflict among the body of believers. Father, we pray that we would be mindful of these things. That we would be on guard. And that we would truly have the mind of Christ. Who gave himself to serve us. To bring us to himself. That we might seek to serve and love one another in such a way. That truly glorifies your name. That truly is a great witness to the community around us. And that also 
builds us closer together, strengthening us so that we might withstand whatever assaults and attacks the evil one may have in store for us. And so we just pray for your blessing in these things, Father. And we ask that you would give us the grace because it's hard and we don't like to submit ourselves to other people. But we pray, Father, that you would help us to do so in a spirit of love and compassion because of all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And so we ask that you would now be with us and bless us in these things, that your spirit would impress these truths upon all our hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself, that your name might be truly praised. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.